In Hebrews chapter 4, Paul is writing to Messianic Jews, Jews who are followers of Jesus Christ, hence the name Hebrews. Um, And in Hebrews chapter 4, Paul is making an assumption that wouldn't wouldn't be reasonable to make today. The assumption is is that you know your Old Testament. Um, I've talked before about progressive dispensationalism, the time periods in which God has worked and, and how nothing is left behind from Genesis 1 all the way through the end of the church and the return of Christ. Um, Paul is, Christ is the one who announces that repeatedly in his ministry that he says in Luke chapter 24 before he goes to heaven that everything must be fulfilled that was written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and and Paul is the only author who explains how that is true. So Paul is going to quote from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2 today from creation itself. Um, This is a chapter in the Bible on a forgotten time period in Christendom. So if you took the two largest denominations in Mendota, Illinois, they teach um, replacement theology, which is that God is finished with the Jews. They, They both teach that what the Bible writes about the millennium is what we're currently in, that there's not a future kingdom where Christ literally sits on a throne for a thousand years. Um, They would not even recognize that Hebrews chapter 4 is about the millennium, that it is about that thousand-year reign of Christ, that it is the time period when every promise, thousands of them in the Old Testament, will be fulfilled and where the church itself will have prophecies fulfilled. Um, He teaches us multiple aspects from the Old Testament about this time period. When he goes back to Genesis, he'll be explaining in this chapter today that going back 4,115 years B.C., when it says that God rested from all he had done, Paul will explain that the millennium, you feel tired today. Do you ever feel tired as a Christian? Do you ever feel like, Lord, come soon, I'm exhausted. There's a practical reality of the millennium is that's where you will rest from your work as a Christian. So when it says the Lord rested from all he had done, obviously he is supreme, never-tiring God, but when Paul teaches us progressive dispensationalism, meaning that everything is brought forward, everything from Genesis 1-1 is a picture that points to Christ, so that when Christ rests on the seventh day of creation, that is a picture of the millennium. That is the place where, whether you are Adam or Abel, or Moses, or Daniel, or Paul, or Judy. You will rest from your labor. You will, in part, be rejuvenated by the millennium. You will be in your glorified body. So Paul takes us back there. He will take us back to Abraham in this chapter. About halfway between Adam and Jesus is Abraham. 
and he's going to explain to us that if we know our Bibles in Genesis chapter 15, there are multiple covenants with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. So the promise of his descendants in Genesis 12, the promise of circumcision covenant, covenant in Genesis 17, and then in Genesis 15, he gives the land covenant to Abraham. And he explains in Genesis chapter 15 um, that this specific land tract in the Middle East is covenanted to Abraham and his descendants. And we know, Paul will explain in this chapter, that they've never realized it. So when Joshua takes them into the promised land, they never occupy the, the entire territory in the covenant given to Abraham. But again, God is bringing all of this forward because in the millennium, when Christ returns to earth and Jesus sits on a throne and Israel is fully Israel, then what was promised in Genesis 15, 4,000 years ago, will be realized. So what God is, Jesus is speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15, where Abraham announces and acknowledges Christ as his Adonai, as his king, master, and ruler. He announces to him this territory, but what he's doing is announcing it for the millennium, for the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation and setting up his millennial kingdom. And then, years after Abraham, um, we have two individuals if we went to Joshua chapter 24, um, verses 29 through 32, we would see two things, that the, the, the one given, the firstborn rights of, Abra or of Jacob is Joseph, that is taken from the oldest son Reuben and it is put on Joseph. Joseph is a picture of Christ when they go into the promised land, 11 generations after Joseph was taken captive to Egypt, one of the things Joshua is bringing is Joseph's bones. So Joseph goes into the promised land as a believer in his physical body, 11 generations after he had passed away. Um, one of my number questions for God is what does 110 mean to you? Because Joseph dies, it tells us in Genesis, at the age of 110. 11 generations after Joseph, his descendant, Joshua, carries Joseph's bones into the promised land to Shechem. And then Joshua dies at 110, the same age as Joseph. And so Joseph and Joshua, and in Numbers 13, we see these two individuals that Paul is going to refer to in Hebrews chapter 4 as the obedient ones. He's really referring to the rest of them as the disobedient ones. So we see Caleb and we see Joshua going in. Joshua brings Joseph's bones into the promised land to Shechem. 
And then Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospel of John, and he comes and he sits down by a well to talk to a woman about the Messiah. And this land where Joseph's bones are brought that are given to a specific inheritance to Joseph is where Jacob's well is in Jerusalem by Shechem, where it is Sychar in Jesus' day. He's sitting down at the well that he had given to Joseph thousands of years earlier. And then finally, halfway between Abraham and Jesus is David. And David is writing about this rest, but he's writing about another day that Joshua didn't give his people rest. In Numbers 13, when the spies go in the first time, right before the spies go in, Moses changes Hosea's name to Joshua. Joshua is Jesus in the Greek. So his name is changed to be a picture of Christ, and then he leads the people into the promised land. Another descendant of Joseph is writing the book of Hebrews, or the, another descendant, I should say, of Jacob and Rachel, and his name is Paul the Apostle. So David in Psalms 95, which he preached through, Paul did, all of chapter 3, he's still going to be preaching today from Psalm 95, the man after God's own heart who held the throne in place until Jesus would come. And when Jesus takes that throne, it will be the rest that is written about in this chapter. So that every believer in history from Genesis 1 till the return of Christ, will be entering into this rest. Let's pray before we dig into the chapter. Heavenly Father, this is important to you. Um, help us to understand, to anticipate, to even live our lives today with the realization of the millennial kingdom of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter 4, um, we are expected to be familiar with the Old Testament, which in the church today is unusual. Not much thought given to the Old Testament, but Paul will explain to us how those things were pictures that anticipated the return, not only the coming, but the return of Christ. Verses 1 and 2 Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, not just Joshua, but it's, we're still waiting for it, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because, and here's a gospel verse, they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So the people who went into the promised land in Joshua's day went in because they were obedient. Paul explains throughout his epistles that we will be in the promised land, we will be in heaven one day because we are obedient. Our first act of obedience is repentance. 
Repentance is not a work. Repentance is, I accept your offer, I will follow, and I will obey your son. The obedience that follows is the proof of our faith. So in verse, here, verse 2 here, they didn't, everyone except Joshua and Caleb, did not go in, as Joshua and Caleb did, those who obeyed. So the picture of them going into the promised land, which was a real event, coming out of Egypt, now coming in as a nation, Joseph's bones carried there as, as Joseph asked for 11 generations, 12 generations earlier, and they're now in the land, not fully occupied. Joshua's name is changed to Joshua so that he is Jesus, bringing them into the promised land, and there are two obedient people. And the rest of them experienced judgment in the wilderness. So in, if we turn to Romans chapter 1, we see that the message is foreign to us, but it's not foreign to the scriptures. It's just foreign to us because we have made salvation less than it is described in the scriptures. So in Romans 1.5, we just read about the obedience or, of Joshua and Caleb and the disobedience of others, which will come up again in Hebrews 4, verse 5 of chapter 1. Through him, through Christ, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So... Paul is saying in Hebrews 4 that those who were in the wilderness did not combine the, their, their faith, what they knew to believe true, to the works, or in their case, to trust God to go into the promised land. So Joshua and Caleb, Caleb is the loudest voice, we can go right in, we can take this land because God so ordained it. The rest of them were, no, we can't look at the size of these people, look at their fortresses, we can't go in there. So they have been following to that point, but when the point comes for obedience, they disobey. And because of that, their bodies were buried in the wilderness. Paul says that he's an apostle who calls all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. If obedience doesn't come from faith, faith is what? It is dead. So that's the picture in Canaan, and that's the reality of salvation. What, what has to be accomplished, and who will accomplish salvation? All of it by Jesus Christ. If repentance and allegiance to him and following him with your life doesn't come, then he can't share with you the promised land or the rest that he's talking about. Look at Romans 2, verse 4, where he's explaining this, and he is speaking to the Jews exactly as he is in Hebrews chapter 4. And he says to them, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It did for Joshua and Caleb. It did not for the rest of the Jews. Verse 5. 
But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. He talks about this judgment many times throughout the book of Hebrews. Verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. So in God's omniscience, he knows who's going to be obedient. He knows that if your faith is genuine to submit to Christ, that you are going to follow him. So the things that you are going to do don't save you, but your committing to do them saves you. And 100% of the time, lost and saved people, their judgment is described as it is in this verse. Every person who stands before God will be judged for what they have done. Not what they've thought, not what they've believed, not what they've acknowledged is true, but what they have done because they have understood the call. Verse 7, to those who by persistence, we read last week about um, finishing to the end, about standing firm until the end. And Paul says here in the Gospel of Romans, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. So that's who will be saved, Romans 2, 7. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. It is the same for us, as it was for them in the wilderness, it is the same today for the Jew as it is for the Gentile. As we go back to Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, I wanted to look up a verse I found real quick this week, and if, if, if I don't find it soon, we won't concern ourselves with it. All right, I'm not going to worry about it. It's, there's a verse in Micah that maybe I'll share next week where it just says, it sums up, this is the will of God for a human being. And it talks about them following him and living a just life and honoring him with their life. In verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 4, Paul writes, Now we who have believed, what does believe mean? In verse 3, it means obeyed. What does obeyed mean? Or in verse 2, I'm sorry. What does obeyed in verse 2 mean? It means believed. It means you've done what you believed was true. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. So two things there. First of all, he goes back to um, Psalm 95 and verse 11. So I have declared on oath, they shall never enter my rest. 
Not just they won't go into Canaan, but they will never enter my rest. And, and we're talking about the obedience of Joshua and Caleb and the disobedience of the rest, and they will not enter God's rest. And then Paul says, for the works that he has done have been complete since the creation of the world. It is hard for us to put ourselves in a place where God exists. I just think of stepping outside of history, outside of time, and somehow, as God, being able to look at all of time and operate outside of it. So everything that he is ever going to do and have relationship with a human being is complete from where he sits. History is still being unfolded. So we think of 1 Peter 1.20. He was chosen before the creation of the world. He was chosen to go to the cross before Adam was created. We think of Ephesians 1.4. You were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Foreknowledge, predestination, serving. So if we went to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, we have this five-point progression that is complete from where God stands before creation. So in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, we have foreknew, God knew you long before you existed. God knew whether or not you would give your life to his son long before you existed. Paul is the theologian that God says, Paul, put this down. Help them to know me so they know my perspective and they know about your relationship and their relationship to me from my perspective. So from God's perspective, he knew everyone in this room before Adam was created. His son was chosen to die before Adam was created. We were chosen in Christ based on his foreknowledge of our choice before Adam was created. And then to those he foreknew, he also predestined. He predestined two things, basically. We just read them in um, Romans chapter 2, that when he went to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he said, Adam, you are free. And then he said, Adam, if you eat from this tree, you will die. What he predetermined for Adam is eating from that tree brings death. That's what he predetermined. The other thing that he predetermined, Romans 8, 28, is that if you follow my son, I will make you like him. That's the predestined outcome. We think of it as heaven or hell, and obviously hell is the first example and heaven is the second example, but his primary purpose is to make every human being like Christ. That's God's purpose. 
We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. This will happen to every obedient human. His desire today is that when it's our choice, we become more like him each day. That's the specific will of God in the world today. So there is Romans 8, 28 and 29. I have predetermined that if you follow God, you will be made like my son. So, what we are in heaven, what we will look like in heaven, will have to do with our Revelation 19 and verse 8, our righteous robes, which have all of the, the things that we did for God written on our robes, we will be recognizably different. If we have been trusted highly with very little, we will be trusted very highly with a lot in heaven. Um, those things are true. That will all have to do with obeying him while it's our choice. When the rapture happens, 1 John 3, 2, we don't know exactly what Jesus looks like, but when we see him, we will be like him, predestined, like Christ, forever. So Paul is giving us this progression in Romans that is all finished Two things about it. Number one, it's all finished. It's complete. God has already established this in his wisdom before creation that this will happen. I will know you before you are. I have predestined the outcome of your choice. I will call you and I will call you and I will call you. And if you are called, that will mean that you have chosen me. And if you are foreknown as my sons, I have predetermined you will be like him. I have called you to be my children, God the Father says. From there and all of that, I justify you, Jesus says before God the Father. Meaning that the wages of sin is death is paid in full for you. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. So 1 John 3, 2, which John is undoubtedly referring back to the end of 1 Corinthians 13 for his theology, where Paul says what we see now is like a, kind of like a cloudy picture in a mirror, but when we see then, we will be known even as we are known. And John takes that in 1 John 3, 2, we will be like him when that happens. That's glorified. So from foreknowledge to predestined to called to justified to glorified, Paul is saying here in Hebrews, those works have been finished before he started creating. The first and last person to follow Christ from Adam to the end of the millennium, it's already been determined by God. He already knows it. He is existing outside of time. Verse 4, For somewhere he has spoken about a seventh day, 
in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works, Genesis 2.2. And again, in the passage above, taking us back into Psalm 95, they shall never enter my rest. Psalm 95.11, David writing about 3,000 years after Genesis 2.2, he is writing about the same rest that God was prophesying when he rested on the seventh day. Verse 6. Therefore, since it still remains for someone to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them, the Jews and the Jews in the wilderness, did not go in, why? Because of their disobedience. Verse 7. God, again, set a certain day, calling it, Today, this he did when a long time later he spoke through David as in the passage already quoted. So here's Psalms, end of verse 7 and beginning of verse 8 in chapter 95, Psalm 95, 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. David is looking back to when they refused to go into the promised land, and he's looking forward to the millennium. And he's making that clear to us by prophesying forward to a day that hasn't happened yet and calling it today. Paul brings this into the church, and we read in chapter 3 last week, to the church, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did when they were to go into the promised land. Paul is preaching the gospel from Genesis and from Joshua and from Numbers and from Isaiah and all of these places and helping us understand what Jesus meant that when they wrote this, it was all about me. He's talking about, verse 4, a seventh day. There are two verses in our Bibles that I believe point to Revelation 20 and Hebrews chapter 4, and they're in your notes. Moses wrote in Psalm 90 and verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. So this verse says two things that we usually don't think about. What people use this verse for is to say, see, it could have been a million years in in creation. It could have been this and it could have been that, even though over 500 times in the Old Testament we were told that those were actually 24-hour periods. So what Moses is saying here, he doesn't say, with you a thousand years is a day. He says, with you it's like a day. Well, there's two aspects, and I think the the secondary aspect is that God lives outside of time. But I think the primary aspect points into Hebrews 4, that a day in God's plan is like a thousand years. So there's a Sabbath rest coming that is a seventh thousand years. And we are just coming, according to Jewish calendars, to the end of the sixth day, the sixth 
thousandth year. So all of these prophets are writing about a seventh day, including the Apostle Paul, and he's calling it a day of rest. And we see another verse in your notes there from 2 Peter, who never writes about the rapture, but he writes about the setting up of the kingdom of God. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. He's almost quoting Moses. Moses is writing as the Jews are about to go into the promised land without him, as he is about to be buried on Mount Horeb, and he renames Joshua. So Joshua takes him into the promised land, and Moses himself writes, a day is like a thousand years with the Lord. And then Peter, long after Moses, writes the same thing. Let's go on, verse 8 in Hebrews chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, Peter says to the Jews there, understanding what has happened in the Old Testament, understanding probably the prophecies of David, he says to them, you need to repent so that your sins will be wiped out and so that the time of refreshing will come. The time of refreshing is the millennium. It is the thousand-year reign of Christ. Here we're calling it a seventh day, a Sabbath rest. So seven is obviously the number for God. Don't get me started on that. You will see it all through the book of Revelation. You'll see it all through the Bible. It is not a coincidence that he created in six days and rested on the seventh day. Because a day is like a thousand years with the Lord, and the seventh thousand years will be a rest. It'll be a time of refreshing. It will be us resting from our labor as Christ rested from his creating. So in verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did his. So he is saying that from Genesis to the millennium, the people that go into the millennium as believers are going to rest from their work. It sounds unusual. It's, it's something we don't hear about, but he is saying here literally, yes, in fact, the work that you did for Christ, you will rest from for a thousand years you will be given a time period where you will know that, yes, they are going, Ezekiel 40 through 48, up to the temple. We are told, we saw last week in the sermon, that Gentiles will be interacting with the Jews and doing the sacrifices at the temple. There will be a knowledge that this is a thousand-year, seventh-day period for everyone through the tribulation to rest from their work. And like I said, in the time of the late church, this is completely lost to us. Verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest 
so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So again, Paul points back to the exodus, the wilderness, and the promised land, saying that they were meant to be a physical picture and a spiritual reality that because they disobeyed God, they, Romans 2, received wrath. Who does God want to give wrath to? No one. Who does God force into heaven? No one. If a person is determined to live without God, they will be without God forever. The millennium and the time of rest will be spent with everyone from Adam on who has given their life to following Christ. Verse, verse 11 again, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The, the perishing that Peter writes about um, in, the, in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not slow, as some of you understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is the same chapter where Peter says, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So from a human perspective, Peter is saying in Hebrews chapter 3, and verse 8, a thousand years is like a day. In verse 9, don't think of it in human terms. In human terms, 6,000 years is a really long time. 2,000 years in their day, they had only waited by the time Peter is writing about 20 or 30 years, and, and they're getting tired of waiting. And they're starting to say, Peter says in that chapter at the start, that in our day, 2022, scoffers are going to come and they're going to say, where is this coming? It's been written about since the creation of the world and everything goes on just like it always has. Where is this? Peter says, no, don't think of it from your perspective. Think of it from God's. There is a day, verse, chapter 3, verse 8, there is a day to God that is like a thousand years and it's coming. Verse 9 don't understand it from down here. Understand it from up there. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Just what he is saying here in verse 11. Verse 12. For the word of God, and this is a verse we're familiar with, but we don't understand that it's written in the midst of teaching about the millennium and about judgment. The predetermined outcome of an obedient child and the predetermined outcome of a disobedient child. That's what this verse 12 is referring to. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God goes into a soul, it goes into a spirit, and it judges. Remember, Jesus would say oftentimes throughout the gospel, at the end of John chapter 2, many people believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them because he knew what was in each person's heart. Am I really your Lord, or are you just verbalizing me? We read last week 
in Hebrews chapter 3, or actually it was in 2 Timothy 2, last Wednesday evening, it says there that every person who confesses him as Lord must turn away from sin. So we're told here that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, and it goes deep into the soul where no human being can see, and it judges your thoughts and it judges your heart. And it is able to determine there from the foreknowledge of God, mine or my enemy. So he is, Hebrews 4.12 is talking about judgment, the word of God. You have in your notes there, um, John chapter 12 and verse 48. If we think back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul says that until Christ came, essentially, the prophet spoke to us in many times and in various ways. But in verse 2, now he has spoken to us by his Son. Take Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the words about Christ. So now that he has come, well, Christ himself says in John chapter 12 and verse 48, just what Paul is saying in Hebrews. There is a judge. Who is this judge? There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the last day. That's the word of God is strong and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Why is Jesus saying that? Because it is a double-edged sword that will go into your soul and divide mine or my enemy. So Jesus had already said earlier in John 12, verse 48, the judge... For you who have Bibles, when you stand before me is, did you follow the word of God or not? Did you obey me? To the Jews who claimed to believe in him or believed in him in John chapter 8 and verse 31, he said, now if you hold to my teaching, then you will really be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What is the, the thermometer? What is the tester? What is the litmus test? It is the word of God which is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword that can go in that person's soul and say verbal confession or heart confession. So Paul says that when we confess him as Lord, we must believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. The obedience that he is talking about here, verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Every thought, every confession, every truth, every lie is uncovered through the word of God, John 12, 48, by the author of the word of God, Jesus Christ. And he knows even the things that could appear to us to be holy or unholy, the word of God is the penetrating sword that is double-edged 
that finds truth. And nothing, Paul says, is hidden here. Everything is uncovered. So in that same 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter himself says, if everything is going to be laid bare in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? He is writing on the same things that Paul is speaking about here, and Paul is giving us the theology behind it. Verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may have mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This faith that we are to hold firmly to. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, I thank my God every time I remember you before him because of your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your perseverance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, let that be true about me. Let that be true about you. Hold firmly the faith as we went back to the beginning of this chapter, is where our obedience comes from. Faith is given to us when we hear the truth. If we use that faith to obey, then we are his forever. Then this time of rest that he is talking about is ours. If we are given that same faith and we say, I do want to go to heaven, please forgive me of my sins, but I don't want a master or a king or I don't want a disrupted life, then God has no choice. Wrath is not his choice, it is that person's choice. So Jesus says, for that person, John 12, 48, it is the very words of God through which their faith came that will condemn them when they meet me. So a person who hears um, Larry's teaching will, I won't step into it too much, but what Jesus is saying in the passage Larry is going to teach that when I give you the gospel and you don't respond, when you're in a church where you hear the truth and you do anything except give your life to Christ, that those very words that you heard will be read to you when you meet Christ. And he says at the end of John 12, verse 48, they will condemn you. Remember hearing this? Remember when you were in church? Remember when they talked to you about following my son who gave everything he could give for you? Remember that you were just kind of that's good, that's neat, I believe it's true. But you never followed my son. Jesus says, those very words that you heard will be brought back. 
he will likely give the, the very scriptures that led someone to understand the truth. He will likely read them back to that person, and we will watch that, and it will be a bad moment. Turn to Romans chapter 16 in closing. In Romans 16, Paul is talking about God's ability to establish us if we do choose to obey. So he's written this gospel letter to us and he closes with this amazing doxology. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that your Son accomplished everything to establish us. If, if we in this room are Gentiles who have responded to the obedience that comes from faith, we can never possibly give up anything that will compare to what we receive in return. But if we don't give it up, he can't establish us. Thank you for the clear message of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the promise of rest that we don't deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.